Let's go to God in prayer. Wonderful God, you have seen us through the night, and you have welcomed us into this day, even with the beginning, when the sun began to break through in moments and in touchstones, when the earth awakened all around us, the birds and the moving clouds, small flowers that try to reach up their little tender necks towards you for light, everything, oh God, that reminds us that you are our creator. We are your created, and so we're grateful. We're grateful, God, that we have this place to come to, to talk to people that, that are so delightful and caring and loving, that we have new friends to make and, and old friends to reconnect with, that we have such deep and wonderful scriptures and texts that have come down to us across the, across the ages. And so, God, we pray that we might just simply give you our attention, that we might pause, put a pause button on all the things that scatter our minds and thoughts, that we might step back so that we could hear you and learn from you and be guided by you. We thank you, God, and we are grateful for everything that, that we hold in our hands, in our hearts right now. And we do pray, oh God, for all of those whose hands are so dirty, whose hands have no clean water to wash with, whose hands are empty of any kind of food or even empty of another hand stretched out to hold. We pray, God, for those who whose lives are surrounded by violence and noise, by those who are estranged from the people they love, by those who are estranged from themselves and from you, by their, their hatred and their hostility. And we pray, oh God, that if there is a way, if we are in that place that we could speak or move or be present, that we will be brave enough to take that opportunity. So we dedicate this morning to you. We thank you, and we come now to your text. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, are you ready? Are you ready? Yes, we're ready. So we're going to launch into chapter 19. But what? first of all, I want to draw your attention to the notes that you received, because at the top you see a word, and you may be familiar with that word or not. It's called theophany. And theophany is that... Um, physical um, revelation of God in nature and in um, the physical world that happens so often through the Old Testament. And uh, when you break into your groups, you're going to talk a little bit about the place of theophanies in our, in our religious experience. But the reason I put this word at the top is because this is the biggest, the most important, the headliner of all theophanies in uh, the Old Testament. And so uh, I wanted you to be sure to be clear about what we're going to be looking at. And also understanding that uh, you can look at it literally, you can look at it metaphorically. Just be sure you hear the message. The message will be the same, however you approach it. So uh, with that in mind, let's go to chapter 19. and. Um, Read along with me if you want to, or close your eyes and listen to the story. 
the Israelites reach Mount Sinai. On the third new moon after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. The people all answered as one, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. When Moses had told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and prepare for the third day, because on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, be careful not to go up the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Any who touch the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot with arrows, whether animal or, be or human being. They shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, prepare for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain, and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. When the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people not to break through to the Lord, to look, otherwise many of them will perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people are not permitted to come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and keep it holy. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let either the priests or the people break through to come up to the Lord. Otherwise, he will break out against them. 
So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. All right. So one thing I want to just point out to you before we kind of get into the meat of it, and that is that there's something here that you'll see played out again and again in Old Testament literature, as well as in some of the New Testament writings. And that is the Holy of Holies is kept separate apart, and you are, are in peril of actually dying if you touch it or you come close to it. This is not just here. It's seen with the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember. They said, carry it on poles, and if you come in and you touch it, you're going to die. And then in, in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, they came in and they said, if you lie, you know, you're going to die. And they lied and they dropped dead right there in Paul's office, you know. So this whole idea of obedience, listen to what God, God is saying, and if you don't listen to what God is saying, you're in danger. You're in trouble. And the most uh, 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 exaggerated form of that trouble would be what? You're, you're dead. You drop dead. So I just want to say that before we start. The re if you've ever considered, if you ever have that this particular experience was a... a one, one experience of the, of the people, that its significance was small, that this Mount Sinai experience was just another story, then let me tell you, this experience carries on that at least the scriptures, the way the scriptures just describe it as until the third moon, which is 90, uh, is um, uh, a, a series of months. So according to scripture, even if it's metaphorical, whatever, is saying that the people were uh, camped out at Mount Sinai for over 11 months. And, and that could mean 11 months, or it could mean until they finished the business that they were doing. But in scripture, the story of the people camped out at Mount, Mount Sinai lasts all the way through Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, all the way to chapter 10 in Numbers. That's how long the scriptures talk about their experience at Mount Sinai. I don't know if you knew that or not. All through Leviticus and, all, and, and up to chapter 10 in Numbers, we're still at Mount Sinai. We're still there receiving the, the, the guidance and the rules of life and all of that. So this is a significant um, a significant amount of time and a significant experience for them. And there's a twofold purpose behind that, which we will unfold as we continue to talk. But it's a significant view of the preparation for the people to meet God, and not only to meet God, but to have reverence or revere what God has for them which is the Decalogue, or the, the Ten Commandments, which is then expanded to the 613 rules of life that God uh, provides to Moses while on the mountain. So this is in preparation for that. And, and this brief little chapter 19, it, it's a brief section that constitutes the basis for everything that follows because of that twofold purpose that's within it. 
the extreme difficulty, and this is where we get into trouble with this. If you read this before you came, you may have been confused by it. Good news. Everybody is confused by it. Because it's confusing. It is a, an extremely difficult um, uh, chapter to analyze. And this Sinai text has been a point of contention and argument and debate and confrontation by biblical scholars. If you can imagine a whole bunch of biblical scholars going at it, you know, on the football field or something, tossing the Bible around, you know, um, you know that they have argued about this since the founding of it, since they discovered it. And they have still come to very few conclusions about some of the tensions or the confusing the, the confusing pieces of this text. So if it's confusing to you, good news. Everybody is confused by it. But so we'll try to kind of sort out the, the basic purpose behind it so that it's maybe less confusing. I don't know. If they can't do it, I'm certainly not going to be able to do it. But we're going to make sense of it. So one of the reasons that it's so majorly confusing is because historical, uh, the historical uh, um, scholastics tells us that there are all the strains of the Pentateuchal communities that are present in this little chapter. What that means is the redactors, if you remember that, who come along in 500 BC, looking back at this, you know, a thousand years before to see all of these communities who have written down their experience or passed it along orally instead of taking one and kind of making it one story, which is what they try to do, give it a sequence for us, they just threw everything in and they said, we don't care if it came from J, we don't care if it came from E, we don't care if it came from P, the priestly, the, the Elohias, you know, all of these different communities who were writing their experience because it doesn't matter that it's redundant. It doesn't matter that this person said this and this person said that, and it makes no sense if you try to think of it as factual. What matters is the message is very clear, no matter who's saying it. So it's not the facts of the, of the experience that they have, which is also a great um, a lesson for us, not to, not to dig too deep into the weeds of the facts, but to keep yourself far enough out of those weeds so that you can really hear the message that's being said with the story itself. So in spite of, like I said, in spite of a, a century of close, critical uh, work, many of the major problems have just remained unsatisfactory and they just say, well, we're not sure what to make of it. So um, anyway, even from a cursory reading, kind of like the reading that we just did, you can begin to see some of the issues that might be arising. For example, uh, Moses is pictured as ascending and descending Mount Sinai at least three times with no particular reason. There is absolutely no reason for him to go up, come down, go up, come down, go up, come down. But there may be a purpose behind that in leaving that in, but it's very confusing for people. Like, why did he have to keep going back up there? At times, the people are pictured as fearful and, and standing at a great distance from the mountain, right? And at the same time, then the next thing you say, put the ropes up. We can have these, we can have these people breaking through the barriers and running up to the mountain and touching everything. So you have these two different opinions and views of the type of people that the uh, Israelite people were. 
And there are times that, uh, where the description of God um, seems to fluctuate between God actually dwelling on Ma Mount Sinai and God actually descending to Mount Sinai when he's going to speak with Moses. So these, these different stories behind the, this story that's going on. And finally, the theophany itself, what happens when God is making that dissension, what happens when we come face to face with God, is portrayed both with the imagery of volcanic smoke and fire, as well as with clouds and rainstorms. And so, you know, it's not a good question to say which is true. It's not a good question at all. It will get you nowhere. The question is, what does it mean? What does it mean? So this seemed, and by seemed, I mean the opposite of that would be seamless. So this is more like a patchwork quilt. That's what I'm trying to say. This is a patchwork quilt, an inconsistent frame for this text. It is not bothersome to the editors because it doesn't impact the meaning of the story. Now, the revelation, this is really important, the revelation of Mount Sinai, which is, by the way, the central episode of Judaism. It's the main episode of Judaism. Was unique, very unique in the religious history of humankind. And, and why is that? Other faiths, such as our faith, Christianity, when God chooses, chose to reveal God's self to us and reveal God's message to us, how did God do that? Who did God do that through? Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God, okay? So, and, and in the, the religion of Islam, the, they believe that God chose to reveal God's self through Muhammad. Exactly right. In the case of Christianity, the son of God, and in the case of Islam, their prophet Muhammad. Only in Judaism was God's self-disclosure to an, not to an individual or even a group. Y'all, it was to the entire nation of Israel. God said, every person, man, woman, and child is going to see me. This is very critical for how the people were going to begin to experience a personal relationship with God apart from the collective relationship with God. Every man, woman, and child will seem young and old, men and women, children, the righteous and the unrighteous. Nobody was, there was no like selection process. Okay, ticket A, you're going to get in line and you're going to come and see God. And then ticket B, you're going to kind of see God, but from a distance from the balcony. No, it was everybody was going to have the same experience. So from the very outset, the people of Israel knew that something unprecedented was going to be happening on Mount Sinai. And Moses had no doubt about that event. And I just want to take a second and read to you something Moses writes in Deuteronomy 4 later on. This is what he writes. For ask now about former ages, long before your own, ever since the day that God created human beings on the earth, Ask from one end of heaven to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has it like ever been heard of? Has any people ever heard the voice of a God speaking out of the fire as you, as you have heard and lived? Moses is reminding them that they were specially chosen to hear 
So our, our text makes it really clear for, the, for those of us reading and for the hearers in that time to understand the importance that the nation saw the past because they were all slaves. They saw what God had done in the past and they saw God present in those events. They, they noticed who was in charge of those events. In verses three and four, Tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to Egypt, how I bore you on the eagle's wings and brought you to me. There's a wonderful rabbi by the name of Rabbi Rashi who lived in the 11th century. And the thing that he was most famous for was his expansive and, and insightful uh, interpretation and commentary of the whole Talmud, the whole Torah. And what he says about this particular piece, this little metaphor, we're going to unpack it and you're going to be shocked at what it, all it means. But what he says is that when God says you have seen, it's not just a tradition that God is handing them. God is making a crossover into a personal relationship. And then it is not in language God says that I'm transmitting to you. It's, it's not through witnesses that I'm testifying to you, but you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how many wrongs they had committed, and then and yet I never punished them till they tormented you. So in this reading, the approach to Sinai is through the people's consciousness. It's through their memory. God is calling them back to remember where they've been so that God can prepare them for where they're going. Isn't that a great life's lesson for us to reflect on our own past? And, and unless you do it in reflection, you're never going to see how many places God has intersected with you in your life. Believe me. And in those times when you thought you were alone, in those times when, when you just didn't know how you would make it, and here you are, you made it, and you weren't alone. So it's in that reflection, and God is calling them to have that reflection. And so the rabbi comments that in this reading, it's through their own experience and by triple negatives, by the triple negatives that God makes in this metaphor, God eliminates the most normal transactions that God usually has with human beings through time and space, uh, the way God communicates involvement in the world. And those three ways are usually traditionally by cultural traditions being passed on. This is, this is how we experience God, and then it's passed on to you, and then you experience to your children and your children's children how you experience God. So that's one way that God communicates. Another way is the language of a messenger. A messenger comes to you with the good news. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a preacher. Maybe it's a, a, a good friend that has such wisdom and deepness. Maybe it's a prophet. But uh, God communicates to us through messengers or by the testimony of a witness of those, to those who have not seen. So, hey, guess what God did in my life? You weren't there to see it, but this is what happened. So it's testimony. So these common dislocations of experience are extraordinarily absent in this revelation. God doesn't communicate with the people in those three ways. 
God says, you yourselves have seen. This is so critical to understand that, that there is no more excuse. There is no more distancing yourself because you weren't there, you didn't hear, you don't know. God is making this available and, and kind of stressing it and saying, you yourselves have seen. And it's so important to understand that. It's the... Um, uh, it's that powerful interpretation. The emphasis is, is made in the Hebrew text and important to the message. So in God's punishment of the Egyptians, we're going to go back now just to, for a moment because th they're still very raw with this. But in God's punishment of the Egyptians, do you remember they just came out of Egypt? They crossed the Red Sea. They, all of these things that happened. What they have seen is a manifestation of how God loves them. So believe it or not, this terrible, violent text really centers on the love that God has for these people. And God wants them to become aware of his singular love for them. God wants them to remember that this whole enterprise is the, the catalytic converter. The fuel that moves this forward is God's love. God's love, not just for them, but for the people that they are going to be saving by bringing the message of God to the world. So it's a, it's a message of love. And, and God wants him to be aware of this. And then this personal knowledge then becomes the basis of a demand from God. This is what he says. Now, if you will listen faithfully to me and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. So God lays this sequence down. God is, is, is saying, look, I've got some truth to give you. And, uh, and we're going to come into an agreement with this truth. And you're going to believe in this truth that I'm going to give you that will help guide you to be in relationship with me. And you're going to have to trust me on that. And when you trust me on that, Oh, everything will be cool. We're going to be together in this great relationship. And you're going to understand me and I'm going to understand you. And we're going to be in relationship with this. So uh, within God's opening interpretation of the Exodus history, there is contained a powerful image. And you probably picked up on it right away because you've heard songs about it. You've heard poems about it. And you've heard psalms about it. You have seen how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to me. And the fact that a metaphor is used at this most significant and serious moment, theologically speaking, in world history, first of all, is most surprising that in this unveiling, a metaphor is used. And not only that, but there is only one other time in the entire Exodus narrative where a metaphor is used one other time, and that is the poetic text of the Song of the Sea by Moses and Miriam. <laughs> that sounds like by Chad and Jeremy, but it's by, <laughs> by, it's by Moses and Miriam. That's the only other time that a metaphor is used. And so this is really big. This is important. And it's this fact that makes God's metaphoric flight about the exodus 
strike the reader so hard, I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to me. And the effect of the image is, of course, to convey certain things. Now, I'm just going to have to tell a little tattletale on the men this morning because, you know, I was kind of going for one thing, and you, as a, as a teacher, you know you shouldn't do that. You can't lead people. You just have to, you know. But I was trying to lead them. And I was saying, so what is the word that comes to you when you think of this metaphor, eagle and, you know, holding the young and all of this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> One of the guys goes, well, all I can think about is the talons are so thick it would rip you to pieces, and then it would take you up to the nest, and you would become the food for their children. And I'm like, okay, all right, men, let's back up a little bit. And I told them, I said, I'm going to ask the ladies what they think this means and see what, and they were all like, no, 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 no need to do that, so. It was interesting, but, you know, the image, of course, it, it, what, maybe a word came to your mind. Maybe, wh what, what word came to your mind when you think of that image of an eagle, of that eagle? Pardon me? Yeah, you're right. It's not that the eagle is going to tear you to pieces and feed you to the babies. No, it's that there's this, it conveys intimacy and protection and love and speed and, and this magnificent freedom that this eagle has, you know, and, and the enormous power of the adult eagle effortlessly carrying its young through the air. I mean, that's what, that's the image that we're given. So, but apart from all of those images, think of this. It engenders in the people a sense of their own lightness, that it deflates their grandiosity. It, it reminds them that God is the eagle, not them. And that, that we are as light as a young eaglet, and that God can carry us from this place to this place, that there is nothing that can overcome or undo God. And so it's a, it deflates our grandiosity, and it evokes a relation to God in which our weightiness, you know, how seriously we take ourselves becomes insignificant when we're in the presence of God and when we consider God's weightiness. And so the image <clears throat> itself achieves this. It evokes a past experience, God bringing them out of Egypt tenderly. It em evokes a physical sensation of being carried and the imagined empathy with eagle and its young and, and it, all of this is to convey a spiritual modality in which the weight and the substantiality of the self are neutralized in the presence of God. That we're not diminished as human beings, but when we're in the presence of God, that's a whole nother ballgame. So the past identities are swept up in a rush of God's wings, and history is driven entirely by God's motion. You know, that's the metaphor as well. God is the one driving the history. And the human reality and the gravity of personal experience is absorbed into that surge of wings. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that the most incredible metaphor? <clears throat> the men are still back on the eagle. I could not get them off of the eagle. And so it was just a, you know, it, it was very interesting. And in this, in this particular uh, sense, the people are being reminded 
of who they are. They are being confronted with who God is. And they are being readied to be the creation meeting the creator. They are being ready to meet God face to face. And not just in the, in the physical or in the natural world, but they're being ready to meet God in the way that God has laid out in these Ten Commandments and in these 613 rules of guidance for life. They're being ready to meet the nature of God, what God values, how God sees us actually operating together and getting along. So um, it's, it's, so it's, it's very interesting, and it's, it's beyond phenomenon of, of, of what God is putting into these few words. In 199, God will speak in such a public way to Moses that for this purpose, and this is one of those twofold purpose of this whole chapter, to convince the people now and forever that Moses is a mediator of the word of God and that Moses is not just speaking his own opinion. So, because you know what? When they leave Mount Sinai, they're in for it. Let me tell you, they are going to struggle and they have got to have this deep belief in this leader or they're going to lose hope at at which point they do from time to time. So, The enclosure of this statement by the repetition of Moses' report in verse 8 and 9 really highlights this purpose as Moses as mediator. And the various trips of Moses up and down the hill, you know, why did he have to go up and down? Couldn't God come up with that right at the same moment? You know, just an afterthought? No, but the, the, the redactors and the thought is that this was to demonstrate the importance of Moses that Moses is being called by God and goes up the mountain and being sent by God and comes down the mountain. And this is a primitive understanding of what's important is that you're called in and you come out and you're called in and you come out. And the importance of believing Moses has been underlined in prior narratives all the way to the back. In fact, Moses had to start believing in Moses from the very beginning because he didn't. He didn't even believe in himself. And God said, I don't care what we have to do. We'll get your brother Aaron up here. He can speak for you, whatever. But you're the guy I'm choosing. You're the guy. And I will show you you're the guy in time to come. And this is one of those moments. I am showing you who you are. So it's interesting to note that this kind of appearance, this this lightning and this storm and and, and the volcano and all the fire and everything, wouldn't have been necessary really to convey a word to Moses. Moses had been speaking for God for a long time now without any of that. He normally receives words from God in less spectacular ways. The storm doesn't necessarily mean that God is, you know, coming down on top of a mountain. In fact, in chapter 24, which you'll approach in another few weeks, you will read about 74 leaders who saw the God of Israel, saw the God of Israel, amid surroundings that were totally devoid of these kind of uh, uh, natural events, these nature events. In fact, these persons show no fear whatsoever. There are no special precautions taken. There are no warnings issued. There are matters of nearness closely specified, yet they experience the presence of God 
in an even more direct way than the people here in this particular chapter on Mount Sinai. So all the earth-shaking phenomena are for a special purpose, this show that God puts on. It's for a special purpose, and that is the people believing that what Moses says comes from God. That they had to see, it had to be a big thing for them to believe it. Because even later in scripture, you'll see that unless God made a big flash, you know, people were like, well, I don't know. You know, and then we go into the New Testament. Well, Jesus, he's just a guy from Nazareth. You know, he's not like a king or anybody important. I see that mindset that, that God works with goes on and on and on. So Moses, so Moses has this particular language here, and he, he tells them, do not fear that there may be fear of God. And this is a play on the words of God, uh, on this word fear. So on the one hand, Moses is saying, don't be afraid of God, because when we're afraid, what do we do? We protect ourselves, right? We hide. We move away from that which makes us fearful. But he's saying, don't be afraid of God in that way, but fear God in another way. And that fear is based on reverence. The people were deathly afraid of all that was happening. And Moses assures them that they don't need to be afraid of God. God isn't going to, you know, God isn't there to punish them. They, God is there to stand so that they can revere him. The proper response to what God has said and done is not fright, but reverence, which is not the same as obedience either. Reverence is a deeply engaged centering of the self upon God as Lord. That's what reverence is. In reverence, when we revere God, we take a back seat. We're not the stars of the universe anymore. We're looking at God, and it's being fully engaged in centering ourselves in that view of God. God has, um, uh, it's, it's, God has a desire for this relationship, and this desire for a personal relationship begins to emerge from these, these uh, texts. And it's just such a focus on God and the divine purpose that will keep them from what they call sin. And, and sin in this context means violating the established relationship with God. I am the creature, God is the creator. When we begin to think of ourselves as the creator, when we begin to think of ourselves as in charge of the world and other people and things, then we are violating that relationship. The phrase that you may not sin doesn't mean that there's gonna be no sin and it doesn't mean that the law will never be broken, but it means that in that reverence of the Lord, it is possible to live our lives in, in a fundamental accord, in a oneness with the relationship that God intends. So the fear of God, which provides the relational grounding for obedience, keeps obedience personally oriented. And why is this important? This is important because of what happened much later. Why is it important for obedience to be personal? Because it is obedience that God wants to the one who gave the law, not the law. It is not the law that is to be worshiped. It's the one who gives the law. 
It is the laws are given as a way and a means to live a good and fruitful and nourished life. But when we start worshiping the law, we become legalistic, we become punitive, we become hostile. And when Jesus came along, what did Jesus say? I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. What Jesus was actually saying was, look, the law was good when it was provided. And warning was given to have this, to be obedient to God, not to be obedient to the law, not to become a captive and a slave to the law so that then you had to be freed by a Messiah from the law. But as we know, that's not how it went. But things progressed and things were said over and over again, trying to warn the people about not beginning to to shrink their view and and see the law as the that which they concentrate on instead of the giver of the law. So with all this in mind, the preparation for the meeting with God begins. For uh, the people, such an event is extraordinary, and the preparations serve several purposes. It impresses, and and these are the twofold purposes. The twofold purposes of all of these preparations, and what all is being said is this. One, it impresses them that this is a real thing, that God is real, an actual divine appearance, that God is a reality in our life, that God is not just a thought that we thought up, that God is really real, and to keep our focus on God. And the second, as we said before, is to let emerge the more profound connection between the people of God and God. So as part of these preparations, Moses is supposed to consecrate the people, uh, that is formally set them apart from their ordinary affairs. Now, this is really important, that they are now holy. On their part, for reasons of purification, which are not strange to them, these are purification for when they are, when when they go into the Holy of Holies. This has always been a part of that priestly um, uh, purification model. When coming in contact with the presence of God, the people are to wash their clothes, and abstain from sexual behavior. That's what it means, don't go near a woman. Abstain from sexual behavior. Now, in some circles of more uh, of the tightly fundamentalists, they just leap on that, and they say, therefore, sex is bad. Or not even the, you know, therefore, when you come to God, when you're in relationship with God, you should abstain from sex. But actually, what the priest is saying, we're going to abstain from all normal things. And we're stepping into a extraordinary thing. So just let's keep your mind on and focused on what God has before you. That's basically what they're saying. And this, it was not a type of moral clause, but a traditionally priestly advisement to not engage in anything that's routine, even if it was a good thing. So the entire mountain will be a consecrated ground, and the violation of which is considered so heinous that it carries the death penalty. In other words, listen to God, trust that what God is saying is true, and we'll all be just fine. And the mountain itself becomes the holy of holies, that which is the God dwells in that mountain. Verse 16 and following commence the arrival of the third day. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. 
Early in the morning, there is thunder, lightning, and a heavy cloud, and an increasing sound of the shofar, the trumpet. Woo! The author once again sharply contrasts the reaction of the people and Moses. It says the people were trembling and they were afraid, and Moses led them up to the mountain. So you see the the author is again trying to say, Moses is like that with God, and the people are so afraid. Just that contrast makes you understand that. And once the people are positioned, the writer again returns to describe the effect of God's presence in Sinai. And this imagery is somewhat different. It's with smoke and fire dominating. But the effect in the narrative, the effect is that of a heightening sense of awe and terror, and increasing surprise. Again, the reaction, the whole mountain trembles. And the climax of the whole scene comes in verse 19, when the sound of the horn has reached its greatest intensity, and they don't think they can stand it anymore, and the football gets thrown to the goalpost, and they're within 10 yards, and all of a sudden you cut to the commercial. (laughs) That is what happens in this scripture. Because in verse 19, what we hear is Moses is seen talking with God, and God is heard answering in a voice. So once more, we're drawn back to that scene between Moses and God. And, and forevermore, Moses is legitimated as God's special instrument, just as he promised. But then we come to this ver- uh, verses 20 through 25 which disturbs the flow of the narrative. And, and many people think that the scene is interrupted and that, that these are uh, added on or tacked on, but there could be another reason for that. Right at the apparent climax of the theophany, the scene is interrupted, and Moses says, oh, one second, goes back up the mountain to get more instructions from God, and then he and God get in this little, uh, uh, little tug of war because God says, I have some more instructions for you. Keep the people away from the mountain. And God says, uh, you already told Moses says, you already told me that God. And I think the people know it. And, and God says, you go down, you take yourself down there and you tell them what I just said. So uh, God insists on making it clear that Moses authority is subservient to God's authority. Now, this, also, this could be certainly attacked on scripture, but also in, the, in a literary sense, what, this, what these five verses uh, do is they slow the action down. They slow it down so that you can absorb what's going on, so that you can listen to the story and not have to jump right to the end, but that you can absorb it in the time that Moses goes up to, has to go back up to the mountain. You're still back there. Whoa, the smoke and the clouds and the rain and everything. And you have an opportunity to be in that situation. The situation has now changed for everybody. And the possibilities for disorder and chaos have been heightened. And a new word is deemed necessary for this new moment. And in view of everything that's happening still, the people remain obedient. The fundamental consideration, however, always is to preserve preserve the life. So these verses are in the service. These five verses are in the service of the twofold purpose of this section as a whole. And those twofold purpose, I know that you could say it with me, but I won't force you to do that. 
The first one is to center the people on the reality of God's presence in their life. Isn't that a good centering piece? God is real. God exists. God is present in your life. So that's one of the purposes of this chapter 19. And the second one is this, to clarify the role of Moses as intermediary because of what is to come. Literally, these verses slow the flow of activity to lift up what is yet to come. So it's important to remember as we close this out, it's not simply being in the divine presence or hearing God speak to Moses that is finally central to that. Because as we walk into the next chapters, what becomes central is, what does God actually say? Amen. Oh, thank you for your time. <laughs>